0: Good to be together today and good to be before the Lord and his word. Uh, My name is Paul Buckley, one of the pastors here, and and we are in a series in the book of Romans. We're just starting, actually, and we're going to be in verses 16 and 17. These are introductory verses, and we'll jump into 18 and following uh, next week and go from there. So as you're turning there, and uh, by the way, as far as turning there, if you don't have a Bible in your hand or a journal in your hand, we have uh, journals of Romans. So we as a church purchase these journals that have the text and then have space to take notes or use your artistic gifts. Some people, uh, it serves them to make a picture of what they're learning. Um, But we provide those for you for free. Um, so we have more of those. I think there's more at the back. There's more I know in the, in the bookshelf over there. So, uh, the best thing is to have the word of God in your hands in front of you as we go through these, these verses. So, uh, so I encourage you to grab one of those if you don't have one already. The title of the message today is Unashamed. Unashamed. The subtitle is The Power of the Gospel. Have you ever found yourself ashamed of the gospel? Have you ever found yourself ashamed of the good news of Jesus? I have. I could probably tell you multiple stories, but I remember one time in particular, I was working at a gas station. I was in college during my winter break, and I was at the gas station. I ran the shift, and, and I enjoyed the, the job, actually. I really enjoyed that job, and I was a believer. I had become a believer uh, at the end of high school, and, and I was just very glad to belong to Jesus um, and he had changed my life in so many ways, and still changing, of course, but um, I was enjoying my job. I was pumping gas, and I was uh, wiping windshields. Now, this is that dates me, doesn't it? That's back in the day, uh, in the early 80s, when there weren't self-service stations, so the squeegee was done by the guy, and that's what I was doing. I was wiping some guy's windshield, and just, just whistling, I guess, and I don't know, humming while I was doing it, and um, and he uh, asked me, the guy in the car, as I came around, asked me very bluntly, what makes you so happy? Have you ever had one of those moments when somebody asks you something about your faith or you encounter some situation where it's coming up, you know, they're talking about what someone should believe and talking about, you know, what, what's true or not or something like that. And Have you ever had that happen? And have you ever had that happen and not felt prepared? That's kind of what happened to me that day. I I guess I didn't expect him to wonder why I was whistling while washing a windshield. Um, And I said about the dumbest thing I could in response to his simple question, what makes you so happy? I mean, I had so many opportunities, right, to talk about that. My answer was, "Uh, because I just am. That was my answer. So pretty pathetic. Uh, It's all right to boo. You can boo. Um, (laughs) It was a boo moment. And afterwards, I'm like, what? was going on? That was so pathetic. Um, so for some reason, I don't, you know, I don't remember all of the things that were going on in my mind, but I, I was ashamed of the gospel because it wasn't the reason. I wasn't, that's not, I, I lied. It wasn't because I just am. I, I'm not just damn happy. I, I need someone else. I need the Lord to make me truly happy. And, and uh, I was ashamed of the gospel at that moment. Have you ever had a moment like that? Well, the Apostle Paul, through God's word this morning, and God himself with his word, wants to help us. He wants to help us in those moments. He wants to help us in all of life. He wants to grant us the the truth and the power we need to resist this temptation. By the way, this is a, a, a pervasive temptation for all of us, all Christians, including the mightiest ones. And this passage is powerful medicine for us so let's pray and we'll dig in and trust the lord to change us in regards to the gospel and not being ashamed of it well we thank you for your word we thank you lord uh for forgiveness you love us i know you uh for the what i did way back there's full forgiveness and you've helped me and and you're here to help us we thank you for your patience and we thank you that the answer isn't in us figuring this out it's in you And so we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to be here with us, to empower the proclamation of your word, the hearing of your word, that you, Holy Spirit, as you take the word, you would bring to us um, change. There would be information and transformation. We thank you, Lord. This is who you are, and this is what you love to do, so we ask for your help in these ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. bringing this truth to his friends in Rome as he's written this letter. It's a transition point in the letter. He's gone through introductions and even in his introductions, as we've learned uh, with Pastor Toby and the other introductory message earlier, uh, that Paul is actually laying out a lot of what he's going to talk about in the whole book. And now he's transitioning. And he's been talking about his desire to preach the gospel among the Romans, who are believers and there's certainly unbelievers there as well. And then he launches into this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. So there's a transition here. And this actually is a a theme that Paul addresses elsewhere. So this isn't the only place where he talks about this reality of of being ashamed or being tempted to be ashamed. Uh, There are a number of other verses. Philippians 1.20, he says. uh, He's in prison when he writes this uh, through the Philippians. He's in Roman prison. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's facing a court case. He's facing possible execution, and he's talking about his hope, expectation by God's grace that he will not be ashamed. Second Timothy one eight, he's writing to Timothy, speaking now at the end of his life. He's actually in jail another, uh, actually this final time, and he is going to be executed. And he's speaking to Timothy, who is a timid person as well. So he's speaking about his own struggles, and he's trying to help Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy 1.8, "...therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God." And then in verse 12, "...which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed." And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul wrestled with being ashamed. He often asked people to pray for boldness. So this is a reality for all of us. We we need help. We need help in this area. We need power to be unashamed. We need God's help. And this verse, I think, is tremendous help. It is God's word. And so what I want to do is basically go through the, the verse, these two verses... And I want to just follow the logic and then talk about the, those points. So just to look at the logic of the verse, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's related to what he said earlier. And why is he not ashamed? Well, he gives a reason. He uses the word for, right? So that word for, um, you want to look why, what it's there for. Uh, and the word for points to the next point. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The reason he's not ashamed is because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But then there's another four, So there's an explanation about this power of God for salvation. And it says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we have three things going on. Not being ashamed. Because... The gospel is the power of God for salvation and the gospel is that because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So I want to follow that logic but I want to finish with the first part. I just want to flip it upside down and get to the point of how do we not be ashamed. So the logic will start with the righteousness of God and then I'll talk about the salvation uh, of God and then we'll talk about not being Ashamed. So so first, the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals God's righteousness from faith for faith, or from faith to faith, sometimes translated. It reveals God's righteousness. It reveals the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? That's the big question, right? What is is that? Um, It's not something that we, in our culture at least, think about a whole lot we don't even think about the word righteousness a whole lot it sounds self-righteous doesn't it when you you bring the word up the way it strikes you is well that's righteous that sounds like something someone self-righteous would say and and then that's certainly in our culture something that is despised and perhaps rightly so but what is righteous what does righteous mean well this is really important because it's throughout the book of romans and a matter of fact it's throughout the bible What is it? What does it mean? It simply means being right. Being or doing what's good. It means right versus wrong. Being righteous means being someone who is good and does good. Someone who is right and does right things. That's what it means. That's what righteous means. And and though we may not use the word today, The concept is still a significant and even essential part of being human. We all live aware of right and wrong, despite what people might say. There is a right and there is a wrong. There is a good and there is an evil. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows. Every human draws the line somewhere over what is right and what is wrong. Now, often people in the battle over where to draw the line will argue against the existence of of right, something that's right. But that's ridiculous. Because no one does that. And you couldn't exist if there wasn't such thing as right and wrong. If everybody could do anything and it didn't matter, Society would fall apart. The, the very law of God is written in our hearts as, as human beings. It's there. It's part of who we are, made in the image of God. And so don't ever buy into that lie that, well, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's no standard. It's relative. That's ridiculous. And, and, and people assert that in their argument against the standards they don't like. But there's a standard. Everybody has a standard. It's just a matter of what your standard is and how you get there. So a lot of the debates that are going on today, people will just assume that their standard is right. But the question is, what is right? How do you get there? How do you know? And I think a good first part in those conversations, by the way, is just to to help them acknowledge that that everybody draws the line somewhere and just ask, how do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? And, And so in our culture, people don't like to draw the line in a way that it would exclude all types of sexual activity. So people today often think it's okay to engage in sexual activity outside of lifelong heterosexual marriage, right? That's a common thing. That's been kind of decided. And there are certain standards that are established on that. But, but, But even if people don't agree with that, they all agree that it's wrong to sexually abuse somebody, right? That's pretty much the common standard in our culture. So that people draw the line in terms of sexual activity is a hot topic somewhere. And what I might say in that conversation, by the way, is, okay, so how do you define abuse? What is abuse? And there's certainly lots of that we should all understand completely and clearly together, but I think God's word would say, actually, there's more to abuse than just the things that are, are the heinous things. Matter of fact, anytime we transgress God's law, we are committing an abuse. We're abusing God's creation. We're abusing who we are in His image. We're abusing other people. And so so the, the law of God in the Word is simply about how to use His creation, how to engage His creation in the right way. And so the line has to be drawn, and we look to the Word of God to understand how He draws the line. And that line, the things that are on the right side are righteousness. They're the right things. And the things on the other side of the line are unrighteousness. That's what the Bible teaches us. And again, everybody lives by the same procedure. It's just a matter of where they draw the line. And I would submit that the human condition is such that we always want to draw it in a very convenient place for our own behavior. Not with where God draws the line. Everybody lives by Uh, some standard of righteousness and what the book of Romans does marvelously is it turns our attention from our own standards of righteousness and our own efforts towards righteousness to look to God's standard of righteousness to look not at the righteousness of Paul or the righteousness of Sam or Susie or whomever but the righteousness of God. This letter will come after this topic and force us to face that we must consider the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of our culture. Not our personal righteousness. But the righteousness of God. And so, we're back to the question, what is the righteousness of God? Now, we would want to look through the whole book of Romans to answer that question. To understand what the righteousness of God is. We certainly have enough so far to understand what Paul's getting at. But let me just take us through certain sections quickly to help illustrate what is the righteousness of God. Right after he says this in verse 17, he launches into verse 18. And he starts verse 18 with another four He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what he's going to do for the next two chapters is talk about the unrighteousness of men, both those who are blatantly unrighteous and those who think they're righteous. They're all unrighteous. That's what he's going to do for the next two chapters. And he's going to talk about in this beginning section in chapter 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against this unrighteousness. And so one aspect of the righteousness of God is this. It's God's wrath towards unrighteousness. It's God's just determination to exterminate unrighteousness. It's God's just response to punish unrighteousness. It's God's just response to rescue his people from unrighteousness. And so the righteousness of God is his righteousness in his holy wrath. We need to understand that. And I think we take our cue from Paul because he goes right into this. He gives us these two verses, then goes into this reality of, of the righteousness of God in his goodness and holiness and our unrighteousness before him. We'll get into this later. We'll see as we get into chapter 1, more of chapter 1. That God basically paints a picture where he has made this glorious creation for us to dwell in. Uh, It's full of goodness. He's been kind. And and he's made us in his image to trust him, to depend on him, to love him, to give him thanks, to enjoy him, to obey him. And we've taken his creation and we've twisted it. And we've said basically, God, uh, in our fallen condition, we don't want you, but we want your creation. And so we're going to take the things of creation, and make them our functional God. And so we exchange the glory of God and all his goodness and glory for the glory of the created things. And the created things are glorious. They have a a derived glory from God and humanity being the chief among them. And so we make idols of ourselves. We make idols of humanity. We make idols of created things we make idols of all the good and glorious things that god puts around us we we dwell in what really is an amazing theme park that god has made for us to experience and all the while in our natural state deny the creator of the theme park while we take the rides and actually abuse the park and so forth so just metaphorically that's what paul's going to get into and that's the reality we are all in this condition, this natural condition in our fallenness of separation from God and we have this, this propensity to rebel against Him, to, to worship the created things instead of the Creator, to enjoy the creation while denying the Creator. Or to try to, later on he's going to say, we try to establish our own righteousness in ourselves instead of looking to the Creator Himself. This reality of sin It's front and center in Romans, especially in the beginning here. And we don't like it. And I would submit that part of why we don't like it is we live in a culture that has a very, very high view of humanity. That we have a very, very high view of people. Now, we should have a high view of people. Matter of fact, the high view of humanity is a Christian value that's been corrupted by our culture because... God has been taken out of the equation. You can study history, and you will see that before Christianity influenced at least uh, the Western tribes uh, of Europe and and parts of Asia, there was a very low view of people. The the, uh, price of human life was very cheap. And warlords would rule, and people didn't matter a whole lot. The wealthy who controlled everything, their lives mattered to themselves. But beyond that, people didn't matter. They didn't have a high view. Christianity came in and transformed so much of the world and elevated the respect, the uh, proper equality that we are to have in our regard for all people, in our love, and our regard for all people. But then as the gospel is lost in the culture, that value remains without God at the center. Without God, there is no ability to value humans. But I want us to be self-aware. that We swim in the... The water of this culture of a very high view of people. So when we're told that humanity is fallen and sinful beyond remedy in and of itself, we don't like it because we're, it's coming against our idol of humanity. It comes against our self, or our sense of righteousness. And again, Romans is going to combat that. It's going to come against that and say, stop putting your hope in yourself. Stop Looking to your righteousness. Look to the righteousness of God. And we must acknowledge at the start that part of the righteousness of God is to address our sinfulness and our brokenness and to assess us properly that we are in trouble before the righteousness of God. Whatever standard we use, we fall short of it. God's simple standard of loving God with all of our being, loving each other as ourselves, we all fail all the time. But we don't like to admit it. And we like to feel good about ourselves. And often we like to look at. Towards those that are. Very unrighteous. To kind of elevate our sense. That we're pretty good. We compare ourselves with others. We look at. Terrible people in history. And say well. That was a real bad person. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. We don't see that. We are unrighteous. We are like a glass of pure water in our original state before the Lord, humanity was pure without sin. And sin and unrighteousness came in in the fall and has polluted that glass. That glass of pure water is fit to enjoy and to drink. It's a good thing. But the pollution of sin comes in like a drop of sewage in the glass and makes that glass unfit to drink. And we like to say, well, my glass isn't as dirty as that one. That guy is mostly all sewage. He has, has hardly any water. Well, we still have sewage in our water. No matter what degree you're affected by sin, we're all affected and we're all unfit to drink. We're all equally unrighteous before God. Whatever your degree might be of unrighteousness, you're not fit to drink. You're not pure. You don't meet God's good and holy standard." This is what Romans teaches us. It says, for all have sinned. All have sinned. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. God is good. God is good and he must address our sin. He must respond to our sin and the the response, the proper response is death because life is found only in God. There's no life apart from God. He's the one who created all life, all physical life, all spiritual life. He's the one who sustains all life. And so if we're going to choose to live life without God, how can we expect to live? Yet in his mercy, he allows us to live on this earth and he blesses us even in our rebellion. It's amazing. But our choice if we choose to live in our sin, our choice will justly result in everlasting death. Because we are choosing that by not choosing God. There's only life in Himself. And so, how could He? How can He give life to those who don't want true life? The wages of sin is death. And He must grant what is just and grant punishment which is exile to those who choose to live in sin. This is a truth of Romans. This is a truth of reality. This is a truth of the righteousness of God. A.W. Tozer has said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. We can emphasize God's kindness to the detriment of the reality of sin and God's just judgment on sin. That's our culture, brothers and sisters. Don't let this opiate keep you from realizing the reality of our unrighteousness before a righteous God. We must fight against this tendency in our own hearts and in our culture. Now we're going to go through Romans and we'll learn how we can do that. And so I'm not advocating now you go out and start telling everybody around you how sinful and terrible they are. Paul is very wise in how he does that. So we want to learn lessons from that. But, but the truth must stand. We must recognize this. We must know, as Toby read from Isaiah 66, this is the reality for all of us. Apart from Christ, we are lost. In August 2007, the I 35 bridge in Minneapolis collapsed. I think we have a picture to show. Killing 13 people, injuring 145. It happened during rush hour. Part of the tragedy is that they knew the bridge needed repairs, and because of budget constraints, they didn't take care of it. They assumed the bridge would last longer, but it didn't, and it collapsed. We must recognize that the bridge that our non believing friends who have not fled to Jesus, the bridge they stand on, will not last. It will collapse. And if you're standing on anything but Jesus, this isn't about us and our superiority in any way. This is about Jesus. If you're not standing on Jesus, that bridge, whatever you're standing on, will collapse. And so, as we understand these things, we must wrestle with this reality. Now, God is patient. And God uses processes to bring people to himself. And we want to be a part of that. But we must recognize that the bridge people are standing on will collapse. And we have a duty to make Christ known as far as we are able we must recognize that the righteousness of God means He will judge sin. And no one gets away with anything. He will and must judge sin. And there's only one and place of ref- refuge, Jesus Christ. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, uh, if we can put the quote up. We got that good. Uh, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Brothers and sisters... Part of the motivation to be unashamed of the gospel is the reality of the righteousness of God and his holy judgments. Most importantly, God's righteousness, the righteousness of God is shown in his son, Jesus. There's more to the righteousness of God than just his holy wrath. Thank God. Because he is a God of amazing mercy. Amazing love. Amazing wisdom. And he loves his people. And in this infinite eternal love. For the countless number that he will rescue. He has sent his son. Righteousness itself. To rescue us from our predicament. There is an answer, there is a refuge, there is a solution for sinners before a holy, righteous God. His name is Jesus. And so in Romans 3, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means to be counted righteous and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. We'll take time to dissect this if you're overwhelmed. Just hang in there. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, be righteous, same word, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's answer, God's righteousness has Jesus at the very center. It is the center and source for us of his righteousness. Jesus is God's righteousness. Paul says that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13 speaking of Jesus speaking of the Father and his work it says it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Jesus is the righteousness of God. And the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus. It's the proclamation of the righteousness of God in Christ. It's the the power of God to change lives because we're proclaiming Jesus, the righteousness of God. He is righteousness incarnate. And in Christ... God works out all the implications of his righteousness. He is the one who fulfills all righteousness. He is the one human who has obeyed. Who has loved the Father with all his being. Who has loved others as himself. To the point of death on the cross for us. He took our place on the cross. Because we are justly condemned before a good and holy God. And yet in his great love God became man the God-man Jesus, lived a righteous life, earned earned all the things that God had promised to those who would believe and obey, fulfilled all promises, fulfilled all righteousness, but then offered that precious, infinitely precious life on the cross in your place to pay for your unrighteousness and to offer a fitting substitute in your place So that now through faith, for it is from faith for faith, it's by faith, through faith in Jesus, the righteous one, as you turn away from your self-righteousness, as you admit your desperate need for rescue, as you run to him, the only righteous one, through faith in him, and through being connected to him, now all of your sins are paid for. Righteousness has been satisfied in regards to your unrighteousness in Jesus, should you Look to him. And Jesus has satisfied all righteousness that humanity was called to do. And so we are righteous in him as if we had been faithful like him. Isn't that amazing? That is the righteousness of God in Jesus. That is the power of God for salvation. It is the reason not to be ashamed of this glorious and good message. This righteousness comes to us through Jesus. Who is the righteous one? It comes through faith. Verses uh, 17. Verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God. Jesus is revealed. From faith for faith. As it is written the righteous shall live by faith. It is through faith. And Paul quotes from Habakkuk. uh, Chapter 2 verse 4. If I remember correctly. Here. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is written uh, in Habakkuk. God was speaking to his people at the time and they were facing exile. They were facing the, the terrible situation of living under people who had no regard for God and no regard for them. And the question was, what should they do? What should people do? And, and God says, well, on one hand, those who are rebellious will be punished. But the righteous will live by faith. In other words, those who, who look to the Lord... And are right in him will endure all these things through faith. They will live by faith. They will be counted righteous in him and they will live by faith. The righteous live by faith. This is a principle that Paul's getting at that is from the beginning to the end of the Bible, by the way. Righteousness was never expected to be based on your performance by itself. Righteousness only comes by faith in God. Looking to God, depending on him. And Jesus is the ultimate righteous one, and we depend on him for forgiveness and for his righteousness and for his activity in our lives. It comes all through faith. And now, in that place of being connected to Jesus through faith, we are that pure glass of water. God looks at us and is satisfied. And all of his love that he's planned to pour out on us, he's loved us even in our sin before time began. If you're a believer, that's the reality for you. And now he can pour out his love on you and work all things for your good and empower you and make you more like Jesus and use you to show his goodness and glory to others. This is the reality of life. That's part of what is being said here. It's from faith for faith. That weird wording, from faith for faith, that's literally what it means. What does Paul mean by that? It means it begins... And it ends with faith. It's always by faith. This is so important to get. Because God's righteousness is revealed in his punishing unrighteousness. God's righteousness is revealed ultimately in his son. But that righteousness of the son is certainly, uh, most importantly, ours through faith. Through being credited as righteous through, in Christ through faith. But also the righteousness of God is God working out his life in us as his people. So Romans will spend time talking about the church and people who are following God. How to live. And as we see those New Testament commands, it's so important not to forget what's being said here in verses 16 and 17. The power of God... For salvation salvation is your justification and your sanctification and your glorification it's the whole thing the power of God for salvation is in the gospel it's in the good news of Jesus so it's from faith for faith it never ends you don't start with Jesus like I got in because I put my faith in Jesus now I belong to him and now I need to just work hard on my own to make it happen you are denying Jesus and you are being very foolish it won't work It's meant to be through faith in Jesus, looking to the righteous one from beginning to end. It's from faith for faith. Your sanctification happens as you look to Jesus. The law of God is good. It's meant to drive us to Jesus. To remember we're forgiven. And to ask Jesus, help me be more like that. Only your life in me will make me like that. It's from faith for faith. It's the power of God for salvation in all these ways. This gospel, this good news affects us. Affects us in all these ways. It creates the people of God. The church coming together. It creates ultimately a new creation. It's the power of God for salvation. Salvation is... Being saved from a dire circumstance to being brought into safety. And so when you're saved, um, it's important to understand what you're saying. You are saved from God's judgment, righteous judgment over you. uh, Both the present consequences and the eternal ones. Because if we walk in ways contrary to the Lord, there will be consequences. You're saved from that, from your sin, to a relationship with God, to being reconciled with God, to peace with God, to eternity with God. And so the gospel, this good news of the righteousness of God, in Jesus, at the the center, is the power of God for salvation. So it saves us from sin's penalty, most importantly. It saves us from sin's penalty. Our greatest need in life is not for self-actualization, It's not to find your purpose. It's not to have food or clothing or shelter. It's not the need for unconditional positive regard. It's not the need to be esteemed. It's not the need to be fulfilled in your work as good as these things might be. Our greatest need is to have the penalty for our sin addressed. To be reconciled to God. To be reconciled to a holy God. The creator himself. We live in the theme park. And we're under judgment. Our greatest need is is to be reconciled with this good and glorious God. We live on borrowed time. Otherwise, the bridge will collapse. And yet, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God and how He brings salvation. And if you are a believer, you put your faith in Jesus, there's no penalty left. There's no penalty left, both for your past sins, for your sins of today, and for your future sins, Jesus shed his blood on the cross and said, it is finished. All your sins, past, present, and future have been paid for. And let me tell you, if you want to live your future the right way, you must Remember and live in that each day. All your sins are paid for. The penalty has been wiped away. It's not just the penalty though, it's the power of sin. And so Paul is going to take time later on in Romans to talk about this reality of the power of sin. So sin's penalty is removed. That's the most important thing. Even if the power of sin remained, the penalty of sin is dealt with. But also the power of sin is broken. in Jesus, because now through faith, In Christ, you are united to Jesus himself. And in that union with Jesus, there's amazing spiritual things that have happened that Paul speaks of. This reality, this ultimate reality that you died with Jesus on the cross. You are united with him and you died with him. Your old person and your sinful nature died with him, was punished with Christ. And then you were raised on the third day with Christ. You are alive now. He lives in you. You're united to the one who was crucified and resurrected. And so sin has no hold on you like it did before. It is powerless before Jesus and through your connection to Jesus. So that's Romans 6. Because Paul's talking about all this good stuff. And then they're like, well, well, does it not matter whether he's sin or not? And his answer is, of course it matters. But here's how it happens not by self-effort, not by going back to the law, but by recognizing who you are in Jesus and living in that reality. You have died to sin. And you're alive in Jesus, the one who loves your soul. There's power in that. And then he's going to go on in Romans 7 to speak about the law. The law is good. And if you go back there, you're just going to be condemned. The law is good, but it doesn't have any power. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we are rescued from sin our sin and what the law reveals. And so Romans 8 talks about this no condemnation and now this new life in the spirit of God. The spirit of God is in us in this union with Christ and he empowers us now to fulfill the law. To actually do things that are genuinely righteous. Genuinely loving God and loving others. It's imperfect but it's real and it's pleasing to God. And then Romans 8 is going to continue to talk about This salvation is not only from the penalty of sin, not only from the power of sin, but from the presence of sin. He speaks about all creation groaning as we await for the revelation of the sons of God. So he speaks of this future place where there will be this final act by the Lord where he will come back and return. And the sons and daughters of God, the ones who have been justified, the ones who belong to Jesus, the ones who have been glorified, the ones left on earth, will enter into a new creation. And he will renew all creation. So salvation will not only be for individuals, but the entire people of God. Not only for the people of God, but for all of creation. There will no longer be any effects of sin and death in all of creation. Creation is waiting for that salvation. And so Paul is not ashamed of this gospel because it is a power of God for salvation. Salvation of people. Salvation of the universe. It is the final and only answer to our problem. And for the believer who dies before that happens, sin's presence is eradicated because those whom he's called have been justified. Those who are justified are, will be glorified. The moment you go to be with the Lord, you experience graduation from this life of struggle And brokenness and sin. And you will be glorified. And there will be no more sin in you. You will be free with the Lord. Death for a believer is a good thing. Because it's graduation into his presence. Because Christ has been raised from the dead. We too have eternal life. And this salvation is to reverberate throughout the globe even now. That's what local churches are about. This salvation and its implications, the implications of the gospel being fleshed out, not only in individuals, but people who come together who demonstrate the effects of the gospel, who demonstrate the righteousness of God, both both imputed to us and credited to us, but also changing us and transforming us. It's meant to, to spread this salvation throughout the globe. And we are meant to take this gospel. And he will bring The gospel, and he will plant the church throughout the whole globe among all peoples. This is the salvation that it speaks of. I'm sorry that I've gone probably too long, but I hope it's worth it. Finally, and more quickly, therefore, in light of all that we've just talked about, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for this salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Do not be ashamed of this thing. This wonderful gospel. This good news. This truth. The righteousness we have. And recognize that out there in the world will be a thousand other counterfeits of the true gospel. A thousand other lesser things that are made by us to be some sort of false gospel. It's all around us. And so sometimes that's what you have to recognize. You have to realize, like, I'm ashamed because this is the gospel they believe. They're not going to like this. And we need to remember what the true gospel is and what it means. And we need to be unafraid and unfooled by those false gospels. They come in all sorts of manners. I don't have time. actually starting a class uh, first week in November on worldview. I wrote a book on some of this stuff. We'll be going through that, so I invite you to be part of that. We'll talk about these thousand other worldviews. They come in all sorts of forms. Politics, candidates, social movements, values like tolerance or nationalism, political correctness, the American dream, Marxism, humanism, atheism. There's all sorts of things out there. Don't be fooled. Don't be afraid. None of them are the real gospel. None of them have power to save. None of them ultimately reveal the full righteousness of God. There may be truth, but there is going to be truth in all those We don't deny everything about it, but none of them are going to fully reveal the righteousness of God that the gospel does. So let us not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. And this is because it reveals the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious good news, and we thank you for your righteousness. Show us your righteousness more and more. Show us Jesus more and more. Empower us in the understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done so that we might have power to be unashamed, to proclaim it for ourselves, for one another, for our lost world. We thank you for the salvation that you bring to us. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.